Wonderful. Well, do keep uh, those uh, words open, uh, either on your phone or physically. Uh, John chapter 16. And let me pray for us again as we open God's word and expect the living God to speak living words to us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God. And we pray as we meditate on your word now, you would speak to us through your spirit, giving us life and joy in Jesus, we ask for his sake. Amen. There was uh, a time when Eve and I were first married, when I would always end up injuring myself in some way whenever she left me on my own. So there was a time she was away in Edinburgh, I trapped my finger in a car door, resulting in quite a spectacular bruise. Uh, There was another time when she was out for the day and I cut my hand on a sharp knife with an amazing bandage required to stem the bleeding. Uh, Suffice to say, Eve learnt early on that I struggled to be left on my own. (laughs) You'll be pleased to have made a bit of progress since then, but, but it's still risky for me to be left on my own in many ways. Uh, so if Eve's away, she normally leaves me provisions uh, so I can survive, <laughs> usually in the form of frozen meals, about the limits of my cooking ability. Now, in many ways, just like me, Jesus knew that his disciples would struggle if they were left on their own. Jesus knew they would struggle because he'd left his disciples with a big mission. Look at chapter 15, verse 16. He says he's appointed them to go and bear fruit, to be fruitful for him. That will mean, chapter 15, verse 27, testifying to him, giving witness to all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. That was a big mission. There were only 11 of them. That is a whole lot of people to be told. To make matters worse, Jesus has just dropped the bombshell that he's not going to be with them much longer, that he's going away. See, Jesus knows his disciples struggle when they're left on their own. So he's reassured them in the verses just before this that he's going to send them another advocate. When he goes, he will not leave them as orphans. He will send them another advocate, the Holy Spirit, who would bring the presence of Jesus into their hearts in new ways. And in the verses we're looking at today that Nick read for us, Jesus promises more provisions to help his disciples thrive in his absence when he's no longer physically with them. Now these words were meant to reassure his disciples then, and they're meant to reassure us today. They're meant to reassure those of us who who know and, and love Jesus and want to live for him. Because Jesus has left us a big mission too. We too inherit that call to go and bear fruit, to testify to him. And that's a big ask, isn't it? There are, what, 50 of us here this afternoon? According to the 2011 census, Canada's population is 22,413. We know it's increased at least by seven since then. The Julianas have joined, and even I have moved to the town. So, okay, sure, best case, some of those let's say 23,000 people in Canada would already be Christians. But you can do the maths. That is a whole lot of people to bear fruit amongst. That is a whole lot of people to testify to, isn't it? And if that wasn't enough, we live in a culture that assumes that Christianity is irrelevant, offensive and oppressive. A culture in which it's harder to believe in God than not to believe in God. A culture where all that seems to matter is what you can see, touch and taste through your senses. That means the people aren't predisposed to listen to our message. 
they will sometimes be hostile in response. And that can make us feel uh, fearful, timid, on the back foot. That can make us turn inwards, try and step out of the world. That can make us relegate our faith to a personal matter, something we never bring out into public. But those are all unhelpful moves. Rather, we need to be encouraged what Jesus is saying to us here, that he hasn't left us on our own. He's left us abundant provision so that we can fulfill his big mission. And he talks here about three specific provisions. He's left to sustain us on as we seek to fulfill his big mission until he comes. The first provision is there in verses 16 through to 22. And that is the provision of joy. Joy. Verses 16 through to 22. Right at the heart of the section, Jesus promises, verse 20. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. What does Jesus mean there? Well, most likely he's speaking about the traumatic events of his arrest, trial and execution which will unfold in the coming hours. Soon Jesus will be arrested, convicted and crucified and the disciples will, verse 16, see him no more. Jesus will be taken away from them in death. And that period will be one where Jesus' disciples weep and grieve. Understandably, their friends have just been brutally murdered. But where the world, that system of humanity in rebellion against God will delight as Jesus is crucified. But note, the situation will soon be reversed. Jesus will rise again. He will conquer death. Verse 16. After a little while, his disciples will see him again. And when they see him again, when they encounter him risen from the dead, verse 20, their grief will turn to joy. For the disciples, the next few hours are like the labour pains of a pregnant woman when there is intense agony. But at the end, there's joy because of a new life born into the world. So much so that, in a sense, the agony is overshadowed by the result. Well, when the disciples see Jesus again, raised from the dead, look at verse 22. They will rejoice, and no one will take away their joy. See, when they encounter Jesus risen from the dead, he will give his disciples a robust, an enduring, a a steadfast joy, so that they can fulfill his big mission. Here's the first provision. Jesus promises us joy. Friends, it's exactly the same today. Our Jesus died in shame and humiliation. He bore our sins when he died. He took their curse upon himself. He loved us to the end with an unbreakable love. And it was horrific. But he rose again. And he is alive today. Not metaphorically. Not mystically. Or in a vague sense. Not in a Taylor Swift, honey I rose up from the dead, I do it all the time kind of sense. But but really, physically, bodily. He triumphed over the grave. He crushed it under his feet. Death has no hold on him. Friends, Jesus is risen. 
And his spirit now lives in our hearts. And so we can be joyful. A joy that no one can snatch away from us. It is possible to be joyful. Not because life is easy. Not because we're prosperous. Not because our middle class dreams are being fulfilled here in Kenilworth. Not because our children are well behaved. Not because our marriage is satisfying or our health is good. Not because we have a good job, a nice house or a large pension. But because our Lord is alive. Jesus is risen. We can know joy in the face of suffering, death, illness, struggle, pain, brokenness. Joy that is compatible with tears. Joy that doesn't mean faking a smile if our hearts are breaking. But real, deep, ongoing joy that nothing can take away. And the way to experience that joy is actually to look away from ourselves, the narcissistic edge that we all have, and to look again at Jesus, and to keep on looking at Jesus. There's an old dead Scottish dude called Robert Murray McShane. And he once told the church of which uh, he was the pastor uh, these wonderful words. He said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. That's good advice, isn't it? For every one look you take at yourself and see corruption and weakness. I know I do. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Take ten looks at Jesus and see his sufficiency and his brilliance. Look again to Jesus as the one who died for your sins. Look again to Jesus as the one who's risen from the grave. Look again to Jesus as the one who is Lord of all. He is for us. He is with us. He is in us by his spirit. He has risen from the dead. And if we trust him, we too will rise from the dead. He lives. And if we love him, we too will live. He reigns. And if we follow him, we too will reign with him. And since he lives, it's possible to have joy in the big mission that he's left us. See, friends, already we're on the winning side. Jesus is risen. He's triumphed. He's never going to be defeated. His mission will be successful. Nothing can stop him now. So we can be joyful because Jesus is alive and is willing to save people. We can be joyful because Jesus is alive to transform even the most unlikely person. We can be joyful because Jesus' work in his death and resurrection are enough to restore anyone and everyone who wills to a right relationship with God. It's reason for joy as we seek to fulfill the big mission. This is the first provision Jesus leaves us with. Joy. Deep-seated, abiding, enduring, rugged, steadfast, unquenchable joy. Because he is risen Never to die again. Joy. Second big provision for us is not just joy. The second big provision is prayer. That's through verses 23 through to verse 28. Prayer. See, right at the heart of this section, Jesus promises his disciples would enjoy a deeper experience of prayer than they've experienced so far. Because, okay, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He's going to be with his disciples then. Okay, but, but that's only going to be for a short time. He will soon finally physically depart from them and return to his Father in heaven. 
But far from this destroying the disciples' connection with the Father, this departure will actually intensify their connection with the Father. Let's trace the logic. Jesus says, verse uh, 23, soon they will not ask Jesus anything. He's not going to be with them much longer. But look what he says, they'll be able instead to ask the Father directly. And the Father will give them whatever they ask in Jesus' name. They'll ask the Father in Jesus' name on, on the basis of the welcome and the access that Jesus makes possible in his life and death and resurrection. And as they ask the Father, they'll enjoy new intimacy with him. They will receive what they ask, verse 24. And the joy that's begun already will be intensified and completed in that experience. And this prayer to the Father is a direct one. Again, look at verse 26. Jesus says that he's not going to ask the Father on the disciples' behalf, but they will be able to ask the Father directly because of him. Do you see the dynamic? They'll ask the Father directly through Jesus. They won't have to go to Jesus to get to the Father in a kind of weird, cold, odd sense. No, they'll come through the, Father, through the Son to the Father directly. This is possible, verse 27, because the Father loves them with the same love with which he loves his own eternal Son. And in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, which makes it possible, in light of the deep love of the Father, Jesus promises his disciples a profound experience of prayer as they get busy fulfilling the big mission that he's left them with. They're not on their own. They can pray. That's the second provision. Jesus leaves them prayer. And friends, it is the same for us today. See, Jesus has died for our sins He's risen. He's returned to the Father. And so the way is open for us to pray to the Father directly in Jesus' name through the welcome and access he secures. In my job, I spent a fair bit of time travelling around different universities in the Midlands. uh, And some of the campuses in the Midlands are quite easy to get onto. They're quite public. Some of the campuses are quite kind of secure and it's quite hard to get on them sometimes. Uh, Loughborough University is one of those hard universities to get onto. Uh, there's a big uh, security uh, barrier that you have to go through. You can't just kind of wander in. You, you have to get clearance. Uh, and I'm always slightly nervous when I arrive to speak at Loughborough. I'm always anxious that they're not going to let me in. I'll have to head down the M1 in shame and embarrassment. But, but what normally happens is that you approach in your car, uh, you wind the window down, you smile very nicely at the security person, and you say, Christian Union, and they recognize, they open the barrier, uh, and you drive through. Why? Because the Christian Union has arranged access for me. Because the name Christian Union is known to the security people. Because the Christian Union has made all the arrangements so that I can enter freely. And in a very, very, very small way, that's kind of like what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has arranged access for us to come to the Father. He's borne our sins, removing their shame so that we can approach God. Jesus' name is known to the Father. The Father loves the Son and, by extension, all who are in the Son. So that they are welcome too. Jesus has made all the arrangements. We simply say his name, rely on his work, and so come to the Father directly. But please don't miss here. That's not to suggest the Father is somehow distant or unloving or evasive in all this. Far from it. Jesus assures us the Father himself loves us. 
And so we can approach him with bold, confident prayer. We can call on the Father consistently, confidently, personally. There's nothing to hold us back. There's no distance from his side now that would hinder us coming. There's no barrier in the way to get through anymore. Jesus has made it possible. And people like you and me are welcome to come to the Father. And we're especially welcome to come to the Father as we pray about the big mission that Jesus has left us. That's good news because it is a big mission. And we feel our fragility, don't we? So it makes sense to pray about it, to call on the Father, to pour out our requests before him so that he might work in us and through us to fulfill the mission. It makes sense then to pray for our family, our our friends, our our neighbours to become disciples of Jesus. So why not even just now think of two names of people you know who are not yet Christians. And commit to praying to the Father for them. That they too might come to know Jesus in life-changing power. And that you might have the privilege of speaking to them about Jesus this coming week. See, Jesus makes prayer to the Father possible. That's the second big provision to help us fulfill the mission. Prayer. Joy. Prayer. Thirdly, and much more briefly, peace. Peace. Verse 29 through to 33. This is the third provision, the provision of peace. Right at the heart of these, this section, verse 33, Jesus promises, In me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart... I have overcome the world. Jesus promises his disciples peace. And they're going to need this peace because in the world that they live in, they're going to have trouble. They're going to have a rough ride. They're going to be persecuted, marginalised, threatened with death because of their fruitful testimony to Jesus. But they don't need to be crushed by this. It's a path that Jesus has walked first. And Jesus has won. He's already conquered. He's overcome the world. He's risen from the dead. He's refused to compromise on loyalty to the Father. He stayed obedient to all the Father had for him. He has overcome. And so he's able to offer his disciples lasting peace, regardless of the treatment they experience at the hands of the world. But Jesus' promise of peace is also great news because, quite frankly, the disciples are a bit of a dubious bunch at the best of times. They seem to suggest verse 29 and 30 here, but they kind of understood what Jesus is saying. Well, look at what Jesus says. This is the mic drop moment, verse 32. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when the disciples will be scattered, and they will leave Jesus all alone. They talk a good talk, but they're going to prove disloyal, faithless. They'll show they're more bound to the world than they are bound to Jesus. Jesus knows that. And Jesus tells them in advance so they're not crushed when it happens. He assures them in spite of their weakness, they can experience peace because of his death and his resurrection. So in light of troubles outside, in light of weakness inside, it's great news that Jesus promises his disciples peace. The third big provision so they can fulfill their mission, peace. And friends, it's exactly the same today. It is possible for you and I to have peace even when we're troubled by the world. 
And it may well be that we experience more of this trouble in the days to come. Maybe we sense things will probably get a little bit harder for us as Christians if we want consistently to live for Jesus uh, in a world that has no time for him. Our beliefs and, and, and our behaviours are increasingly going to mark us out as different from people around us. We feel that identifying as a Christian will somehow draw hostility to us. Our deepest convictions are not going to be shared by those around us. The things that we cherish about Jesus will be rejected by others and just as they trashed him, so they're going to trash us too. I'm sure that experience is not unknown to those of us who are in school or in college or in the workplace, for example. So how should we respond when we face trouble from the world? Well, I think there are three wrong moves we can make. I remember back to my school science lessons. I don't remember much about school science lessons. I was pretty rubbish at it. But I do remember that the important thing is if you're kind of threatened, there's this deep-seated, ingrained biological response that kicks in. If if you meet an aggressor, your adrenaline kicks in, and you tend to do one of three things. You either fight the aggressor, or or you run away from the aggressor, or, or you try and pacify the aggressor. Fight, flight, or pacify. So let's run that scenario. We might then tackle trouble head-on aggressively, asserting simply that we're right and everyone else is wrong. Or we might tackle trouble by running away, retreating with inside the walls of the Christian community, attempting somehow, as if it were even possible, to withdraw from the world, realising we just can't do that. It's not possible even if we wanted to. Or we might try to tackle the trouble by minimising the difference, downplaying some of the, the rough edges of our faith. Those are all wrong moves. We're not to fight. We're not to flee. We're not to pacify. Instead, we're to experience peace in the midst of trouble. A peace grounded on Jesus' death and resurrection. A peace that flows to us because he has overcome the world. A peace that can be ours because at the end of the day, we are right with God. We're at peace with our maker. We enjoy his smile and his approval. There's an old hymn that we sang at, at KCC a few weeks ago that reminds us that when troubles like sea billows roll, it is still possible to enjoy peace like a river because it is well with my soul in Christ. It is well with your soul in Christ. Now, Jesus has left us a big mission. It's a big task. Like me, you could be fearful. We won't always be popular. Like me, you could be intimidated. We might be persecuted. Like me, you could be tempted to give up on the mission or change the message. We feel our weakness. Like me, you wonder if Jesus can really use you. You might feel there's nothing on offer. Like me, we fear that somehow that could disqualify us from the mission. We feel we're not impressive. Like me, you wonder if that should mean that you should stay silent sometimes. But we don't have to think that way. We can be at peace. Jesus has overcome the world. He promises us peace so that we can fulfill the big mission. That's the third great provision for us. Peace. Hopefully we've seen today Jesus hasn't left us on our own to fend for ourselves as we fulfill this big mission. No, he's died. He's risen. He's poured out his spirit on us. He's provided joy for us. He's made it possible for us to pray. He's promised us peace in troubles outside and in light of weakness within. Yes, it is a big task. 
Yeah, there's not that many of us here. Yeah, we've got lots to do. But we're on the winning side. Let's not be downheartened, but encouraged. This idea is captured beautifully uh, in one of those beautiful moments in the uh, C.S. Lewis uh, storybook, The Lion, the Witch, uh, and the Wardrobe. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. Uh, We pick up the story when Lucy and Susan Pevensey uh, have just witnessed Aslan being executed by the White Witch to pay for Edmund's treachery. And Lewis says, no one who reads this book, uh, he hopes rather that no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you'll know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt for these two. Soon you will have grief, Jesus says. However, grief isn't the end of the story. Even in the midst of their tears, they hear a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. They turn and they see that the rising of the sun makes everything look different. All the colours and the shadows are changed, that for a moment they don't see the important thing. And then they do. The stone table's broken into two pieces with a great crack that runs down the centre of it from end to end and Aslan isn't there anymore. And they worry what's happened to the great lion. They fear there's more magic going on. And there is a deeper magic. They hear Aslan himself. Yes, it is more magic. And there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, Shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Your grief will turn to joy, Jesus says. Aslan's alive and the story continues. Aslan says, to business, I feel I'm going to roar. (laughs) See, resurrection kickstarts his mission. It's true for Aslan in a smaller way. Friends, it's true for Jesus in the most profound way possible. Resurrection kickstarts his mission. About to business. He's roaring. So let's take heart. Let's be joyful, prayerful and peaceful. Let's keep looking to Jesus. Confident, as he promises here, he has overcome the world. Why don't we take a moment of quiet in our hearts just to respond to the risen Jesus as we've heard his words and then I'll pray and then we'll sing in response. But a moment of quiet. Uh, And then I'll pray for us. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Father, thank you that although for the disciples here there was a period of intense agony and grief as they witnessed the brutal execution of their friend and their leader, their grief would turn to joy. Soon they would encounter Jesus risen in his glory and splendor and majesty. They would see him again, be reunited And even then, as he would leave them not long after that, he, there is joy because they are not on their own. They can know joy because of the Savior's resurrection. They can call on you directly in prayer 
And they can have peace in the world because Jesus has overcome. (coughs) Father, just as these words were meant to assure and encourage disciples then, Father, we pray they would encourage and assure disciples today. Father, please, we pray, keep us looking to Jesus that you would increase our joy. Keep us looking to Jesus so that we would make the most of prayer to the Father. Keep us looking to Jesus that we would have peace in a troubled world because he has overcome. Thank you that he has risen from the dead bigger than he was before. More glorious, more splendid as the risen reigning God-man, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God in, 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 in a deeper way now because of his resurrected glory. And help us to fulfill our part in the big mission that's been left behind. To bear fruit, to bear witness, individually and together as a church. Please help us with these things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.